theyeshiva.net. Today's shear is dedicated in the memory of Reb of Harav Akiva ben Harav Avraham ben Yaman Zilberberg, whose yard site, 33rd yard site, was yesterday on Chavgimel Tamas, the 23rd day of Tamas. He was the son of a Jew who was known as the Pittsburgh Rav, who served for many decades as a famous Rav in Pittsburgh and a very fiery Ger Chassid, very close to the Beis Yisrael and the Lev Simcha, and a very great Askin and an Oyev Yisrael par excellence. And among many other things, he founded the Ger Yeshiva Yagdal Torah and funded it for many years with a philosophy of... Uh, believing that every student should be focused on and made sure that he blossoms and grows. And his son told me that uh, one of the teachers came to him and said that uh, in his class he has a schlechte kind, a bad, a bad child. So he told him in a classic Polish, a Gerer accent, he said, Schlechte Malamdem, ich weiß, dass du schlechte Eltern, Stasasach wie schlechte Kinder. There's maybe such a thing as bad teachers or bad parents. There's no such a thing as a bad child. Today we're going to explore a story in Parshas Matois. At the surface, one would not see much personal relevance to their lives in this story. But upon deeper reflection, it's maybe one of the very valuable lessons in life. A little background. The Jews go to war against a nation called Midian. Midian, under the direction and advice of Bilam, has strategically planned the demise of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people go to war against Midian. They come back from war with a tremendous amount of booty, spoil and plunder. So the Jews return from war with an enormous amount of booty, including many food utensils. What happens now is something very interesting. El Azar Hakoyin, Aaron already, as you recall, has passed away. He's been succeeded by his son El Azar who became the new high priest, the new Kayan Gadol. El-Azhar greets the 12,000 soldiers who went to war. Anshei Hatzava. He greets them and he says, This is the ordinance, the statue, the law of Torah that Hashem commanded Moshe. And I quote, Aches Hazov es HaKosef, es es HaBarzon, as Habdil Veshoi Fores, called Dover Asher Yovei Veish, Taviru Veish Vitohir, Vachol Asher Loyovei Veish, Taviru Bamoyim. The gold and the silver, the brass and the copper, the iron and the tin and the lead, whatever in you was used in fire, you shall pass it through fire and it will be clean. Whatever is not used in fire, you shall pass through water and it will become clean. It's really marvelous to see the impact 
of one biblical verse. One or two psukim and parashas matais, which contain the guidelines of Elazar Hakayan to the people who came back from war, essentially constitute the foundation of the halachas, the long-standing rules and techniques of kashering, of cleaning, cleansing all food utensils. It all originates in this in these two verses that Elazar speaks, that communicates to the people coming back from war. What is he really saying here? Like everything in Chumash is brief, cryptic, concise. Enormous amount of information is contained within one or two short verses, sometimes even less. But from this, when you flesh out the text, when you dissect it, when you analyze it, and when you get the full understanding of it, one has here the entire blueprint and manual for the halachas of kashering that are still used till this very day, 3,000, more than 3,300 years later. To give a brief outline of what halacha we learned just now from what Elazar Hakayin said. First of all, he introduced various materials. He spoke about gold and silver, brass, copper, iron, tin, and lead. He spoke about utensils that are used in fire, and you have to pass them through fire. He spoke about utensils that are not used in fire, and then them you have to pass through water. What is he referring to? We all know that the laws of kashrus, the laws of kosher, dictate that certain foods are prohibited for Jewish consumption. So that would include a milk and meat mixture, what we call don't cook the goat in its mother's milk, or other forms of meat and milk cooked together. Of course, it means meat, flesh from an animal that doesn't have the signs of kashrus, the two permitting signs of split hooves, and an animal that regurgitates its food, its shoes, its cut. Of course, it also includes a kosher animal, but it was not slaughtered properly according to the halachas. It died naturally, or it was killed any other method. That would also, of course, be not kosher. The same is true with unkosher fish, meaning fish that don't possess the two kosher signs of fins and scales, for example, shrimp or crab, etc. These are the basic examples of food that is not suitable for Jewish consumption. That's step one. But here in Matas, that's discussed in Parshas Shmini, in Parshas Re'eh. But step two is what is introduced in Parshas Matas. And that is, a person has a pot, and the pot is kosher. But the, a person happened to cook shrimp, or a non-kosher piece of meat, horse meat, or even chicken. Or a kosher cow, but it wasn't shechted, it wasn't slaughtered according to Allah, just a chicken that died. And this chicken, or non-kosher meat, or non-kosher fish, is cooked in an otherwise kosher pot. You're not eating that food. Somebody else ate the food, a non-Jew used the pot. But now you want to use the pot for your own meal. What we learn here, Al-Lazar HaKoyin introduced a new halach. And that is, that the taste... And the flavor of the shrimp gets absorbed in the walls of the pot. So later when you cook your kosher food in this pot, the kosher food will absorb the taste of shrimp 
or the taste of non-kosher chicken, or whatever else non-kosher you cooked in the pot, and this will render the new kosher food not kosher. What can be done in such a case? So the first thing you must do is, as the telegram from Sprinze from Pinsk to her cousin in America, begin worrying details to follow. The first thing you have to do is, of course you have to worry. What do you do? Then you have to go about the koshering process. What's the koshering process? You need to purge, remove the prohibited taste from the utensil, which will render the utensil the keli kosher again, and then you can cook in it as as much and as long as you want. What is the mechanism of this law? This is what Allah Zerachayin introduces in Parshas Matas. And it's encapsulated by our sages in three words, Keboiloi, Kach, Poltoi. Which means, as it was absorbed, so it is expelled. Keboiloi, from the word Livloa, to swallow, to absorb. Just as it's absorbed, that's how it is. It spits out. Pilot means to spit out, to expel, to emit. The same process, the same mechanism that was used for absorption into the walls of the utensil is the same mechanism to be used to expel the taste from the walls of the utensil because just as it absorbed it the same way it will expel it. What does this mean? If the prohibited taste was absorbed by cooking it in boiling water. So I took the shrimp, I filled up a pot with hot water, I heated the hot water, and now I put in the shrimp, and it gets cooked in the pot, or whatever else, the other non-kosher food in the pot. So the way it got absorbed into the walls of the pot was through boiling water. Not directly with fire. The fire is under the pot. The fire is under the pot. The fire and the food are not directly in contact. Rather, it's the hot water. The water becomes hot. And it's the water that allows the molecules to expand in the laws of chemistry and the food, the taste to be absorbed. So then, immersing this pot in boiling water will extract, will expel any taste left in the pot. The same way it got in, is the same way it creeps out. How did it become treif? Through hot boiling water, which transferred the flavor into the pot that got absorbed. No problem, take the same pot, fill it up with hot boiling water, and the taste will be expelled. However, if the utensil absorbed the prohibited taste by being used directly over the fire, for example, you're making a bonfire, or you have a barbecue, and you have a non-kosher hot dog, sausage, or piece of steak, or piece of chicken, and you take your spit, your metal spit, and you put it into a piece of non-kosher meat, and you broil it, and you grill it over the fire, now this spit also absorbed non-kosher food, the flavor of non-kosher food, but how? Not through boiling water, directly through the fire. This spit was in the fire. The flames transfer the taste into the spit. Now it has to go through a process called libun. Libun means you blow torch the spit until it becomes white hot. Blow torching will expel the flavor of the non-kosher steak from the spit. Where in the first case, you can cleanse your pot through 
means of what we call hagala versus libun. You immerse the pot in boiling water. This will extract the taste. Where in the second case, it's not enough to fill up the spit, fill up a pot of boiling water and put the spit in. The hot water will not expel the taste. You need the fire to expel the taste. And therefore, you need to blowtorch it in order to expel the taste. If a vessel was used with strictly cold items, I have a non-kosher cold beverage. For example, water would never be non-kosher. But if I have a wine that's non-kosher, or sometimes you can have other beverages that are not kosher in case of Arlo, whatever the situation is, truma. So in this case, what happens is, the contact with the becher, with the cup, was... There was no hot water, there was no fire, it was just used as a cold item. It's a cold drinking glass that was used with a non, non-kosher cold beverage. Then, what do you do? You have to rinse it with cold water. You rinse it with cold water and it becomes kosher. The way it got in is the way it gets out. This, in a nutshell, is a summation of the koshering process. At first glance, it would seem that these halachas are extremely technical. They're relevant if you're making Pesach, which is not something a Jewish woman should make. But if you happen to be making Pesach, and you don't have your another Pesach kitchen, and you don't have a whole other set of cutleries, and dishes, and pots, and pans, and cups, etc. So as you remember from your mother and your grandmother, and plenty of people still do it today, the nights before Pesach, especially the night before Pesach, when crisis reaches the crescendo and the spaghetti hits the fan, the great moments of kashering have arrived. And the pots, the big pots are filled with boiling water, and the spoons are thrown in, and the bowls are thrown in, and the cups are thrown in, and the bechers are thrown in, and whatever you can throw in, as the bubbling hot water extracts the last vestige of chametz flavor in these pots and utensils, and they become wonderfully kosher Pesach, but that is only if it is a utensil that absorbed the chametz through hot water, not a utensil that absorbs the chametz through direct contact with fire. So on one level, these are the laws of kashering that apply to the kosher kitchens, and they have applied to kitchens for the last 3,000 years, including today, as we stand many thousands of years later, but the same halachas are still applicable. But today we want to go one step deeper, or maybe two steps deeper. And that is, every halacha in all of Judaism, every law, every mitzvah, every tradition, every ritual, every custom, and every commandment, can be understood on two levels. Both legitimate, both true, both authentic. One is not at the expense of the other. The concrete and the abstract. The physical and the metaphysical, on a body level and on a soul level. The chitzainius and the pnimius. On one level, you're dealing with a physical, concrete behavior. As in this case, you take your physical pot, you throw it into a huge pot, boiling, simmering, with bubbly hot water, and it gets kashered. Or you take your spit and you blow torture, you, you blow torture your counter, whatever it is. But there is also a soul level to the mitzvah what's called the neshama of the mitzvah, the soul of the halacha. In addition to the practical guidelines of the law, it also holds pearls of timeless wisdom, a blueprint for the internal, intellectual, emotional, psychological, and spiritual composition of the human psyche. 
That means every halacha could be studied on two levels, practical and emotional. One, I could look at it as a law of what I'm supposed to do in my kitchen, or what I'm not supposed to do in my kitchen. Another way of looking at it is, and again, it doesn't exclude the first, it just adds to the first, is it doesn't only give me guidance about my kitchen, it also gives me guidance about my life, my soul, my mind, my life as a human being, as an individual, as a Jew, as a human being, as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, and as a person myself, as a Jew myself. These halachas are no exception. The laws of kashering, taught by Elazar the high priest over three millennia ago to soldiers coming back from Midian, embody fundamental psychological, emotional, and spiritual ideas that can help us here and now today navigate our own lives. And it's this dimension that I want to begin to explore today, because this halacha that we just learned reflects three ideas. Number one, the inside counts. That which is beneath the walls, invisible in the walls, is significant. Number two, whatever you absorb, you can expel. Number three, the process of extraction is similar to the process of absorption. All these three halachas, Elazar taught, you have a clean utensil, it came from Midian, looks beautiful. No, you have to know what's behind the walls. Don't only look at what you see, look at what you don't see. Number one. Number two, even if you know there was a lot of tray for food here and Midian was not into glot kosher, or even mahadrin, certainly not mahadrin, minna mahadrin, or even basic kosher, and you may think it's a hopeless utensil, it's not a hopeless utensil. You absorbed it, you can expel it. It came in, it can go out. There's no such a thing, it came in, it doesn't go out. You have to know how, but it goes out. And number three, how does it go out? Just as it came in. In order to appreciate this, let me first ask one more question. The question may be technical to some, but as I'm pointing out today, what seems technical on one level is far from technical on another level. It's just that Judaism needs to be taught and understood in a holistic fashion. Holistic Judaism means, holistic is a combination of two words, halachic and mystical. When you have halachic and mystic, you have holistic. So some people only identify halachic Judaism, meaning everything is just a technical law. Red lights and green lights. This you do, this you don't do, this you do, this you don't do, this you can do, this you can do, this you can do, this you do, this you do, which is vital, which is important. But then there is also appreciating that every one of these laws is really teres hanefesh. It's part of chayvus halavavos, it's part of the emotional and spiritual journey of the human being. So I want to introduce one more question. When they came back from war, with all this booty, with all this plunder, Elazar speaks about the laws of Kashrus. He gives over the halachas that we just discussed. Then, Moshe speaks to them about splitting up the booty between the people who went to war, and the part that went to the Kayanim, to Allah's or HaKayan, 
and gets into that whole process. At the end of it all, at the end of this whole story, the generals, the commanders who led the battle come to Moshe and say, we counted the heads of all the people who went to war. Nobody was missing. There were no casualties. And therefore we decided to bring a carbon, an offering to Hashem. And they brought golden utensils as an offering. Etzada, which are uh, feet bracelets, summit hand bracelets, agil, earrings, kumas was a unique... Uh, a unique uh, a part of jewelry that was placed in the modest pl- part of the body. To atone for our souls before God. So Moshe and Elazar take all of the gold that these generals and commanders brought as an offering. The interesting thing here is that this offering is discussed after the laws of kashering, after everything. Really, you would think they come from war. And they say, listen, there were no casualties. You count your people, no casualties. Amazing, let's bring a carbon. It only happens much later. First he tells everybody the laws of kashering, which is about what you do with the vessels. And then the laws of taxation, how this plunder is going to be divided. After all, they come and say, by the way, there were no casualties, we want to bring a carbon. Shouldn't have this happened right when they come back from war, before this whole lecture on how to kasher the utensils, which seems to be another chapter after the war. Only when we can appreciate that the halachas of kashering are not only about kashering utensils, but also about kashering people, kashering souls. And you know, kashering utensils is also hard, but kashering souls is sometimes a little harder. Can we appreciate the sequence of events in this parsha? So we begin with step one. The inside counts. We continue step two. What you emit, what you absorb, you can emit. Step three, the mechanism is usually identical. More than 3,000 years before the birth of psychoanalysis and the so-called discovery of the subconscious, the Torah is teaching us here that one cannot only look at the actual visible food in a utensil. Is it kosher or not kosher? You also have to reckon, you have to pay credence to the invisible taste and flavor that hides beneath the surface. It hides in the walls of the pot and nobody sees it. Because the pot is clean, absolutely clean. It's behind the walls. And why is this so important? Because it's not like it's going to remain in the walls forever. When you cook your next dish, it's going to impact the dish. It's going to emit suddenly, it's going to release its flavors, and it's going to be absorbed in your new dish. What does this represent on a spiritual level? Some of us sometimes make the mistake of thinking that the key important factors in life is to make sure that everything looks good on the outside. And as long as it looks good on the outside and the behavior externally is perfect, that suffices to make a pot kosher. But that's not the case. One must be extremely sensitive on what is happening in the pnimius, not only in the chitzainius. 
It's not only what people see. It's who we really are. It's not only what other people will think about our children, about our families, about ourselves. That is almost insignificant relative to what your children will think about themselves, what you think about yourself, what God thinks of you, who you really are, what is behind my walls, even if nobody ever sees it. We often make a tragic error by thinking that if we clean up the pot and everything looks perfect, it is perfect. But that's not the case. If you ignore what is happening in people's hearts, what is happening in people's minds, what is happening in the consciousness, in the neshama of people, if you don't address the full spectrum of the human condition, if you don't address your children's emotions, your children's inner world, your children's inner beliefs, their inner system, their inner values, if you don't address your own inner world, your own inner values, what makes you tick, what drives you in life, what is the source of your responses, how do you live, how do you communicate to people, how do you function, how do you operate, not only if it looks good, not only if you're dressed apart, you talk the talk, and you walk the walk, but rather, who am I truly as an internal human being? Pnimiyazdik, which very few people know. Nobody sees it. Maybe your best friend or best friends if you reveal it to them. And sometimes even to them, you don't say it. That's where I sometimes lose focus from. To the detriment of myself and the people around me. Because whatever is inside will come out. It may not come out tomorrow. But it may come out in a year, it may come out in 10 years. And if the infection was ignored, it's going to be very difficult often to deal with. How often do parents ignore challenges their children are going through and they just marry them off? With the faith, we'll marry him off, we'll marry her off, and everything will be good. Now sometimes I should say, there is wisdom to the idea that not everything has to be analyzed, not everything has to be dissected. Sometimes you move on and things straighten themselves out. But you have to be very careful that that decision was coming from a place of empowerment, of sensitivity, of deep, deep awareness and knowledge that this is really the best route for this person. If other considerations are playing a role, namely... What are people going to start saying about this 25-year-old girl? Or this 25-year-old boy? How is it going to affect the other kids? What's going to be with the reputation of my family? Let's just get rid of him. Boom, boom, boom. It's a nice family. You know your child is dealing with something. Who's going to deal with this? When is it going to come out? How is it going to come out? Don't ignore it. It's not wise. It's not the right thing. It's not what God wants from you. It's what happens here is I allow external considerations to prevail over what matters, what is truthful. And who pays the price afterwards? Whatever is inside comes out. I really have to think about the panemius of my child. I have to think about my panemius, my insides. 
And the same is true with every area in life. Sometimes in our, with our own loved ones, if they come, they complain about something. They display concern about something. We want to make things look good, fast fix, just make it work. Even with your car, it's a wrong mistake. It's a mistake. Your car is malfunctioning. You come to the mechanic and you say, just make it look good. <laughs> Rebetzin, I could make it look good, but you have to travel now four hours. You're going to break down on the highway. It's not going to be fun. Leave it by the mechanic for two days. No, 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 no. I, I don't hang out by mechanics. I don't go to these places. I don't go to mechanics. Uh, our family doesn't go to soul mechanics. We were born perfect. Just touch it up. A little makeup on the car here, a little makeup there. Let it look good. Hey, Rebetzin, the engine is fashimult. He's like, fashimult. Uh, the engine is messed up. No, 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 the engine is not messed up. We'll drive, yeah? And it's going to be good. On the highway, it's going to get straightened out. It's going to see the other cars. It'll be impacted by the atmosphere. It'll want to do what the other cars do. Everything will work out. I'll put it on the I-95. We'll go. It happened to me also. You think I didn't have the same problems? You did, and you never dealt with it. <laughs> and that's why the situation looks like what it looks. The problem is the car would love to go like other cars. It just can't. It can't. <laughs> the engine needs help. But the engine is invisible. You have to pick up the hood. Who wants to pick up hoods? Who picks up hoods? It's not for a Jew. You ever saw a Jew picking up his hood or her hood and saying, Wow, you see my car. Look, let's analyze it. We only pick up hoods when there's crisis. You ever saw a Jew changing a flat tire? I should change a flat tire? Some people that have a flat tire, they get down, you see, with a chiyos, with a passion. They take out the jack. Two hours, they start with the car. The Jew has a flat tire like this. Who can I call? Get out of the car and fix your flat tire. It's good for you, a little exercise. Who can I call and who can I sue? This Ganev gave me the car, a Goslin, a Ganev. But if there's a flat tire, so that's visible. And then there's things that are not so visible. The same is true in people's marriages. Sometimes people tolerate things that should not be tolerated. Certain forms of abuse that are tolerated. The main thing is it looks good. Sometimes a person does it from strength. You're making a choice, not from fear, not from insecurity. But very, very often, I'm hiding it and I do not acknowledge that it's real. And when I don't acknowledge that it's real, it's going to emerge with a vengeance. And all the future foods are going to become treif. They will be affected by this flavor, because what is inside counts. Judaism is not only about what I look. It's much more, more importantly, it's about who I am. Who I really, really am. In the inside of my personality. Do we address this in our schools? Do we address this in our homes? Is this the conversation around our Shabbos tables? Around our kitchen tables? Our casual conversations? not only about homework, it's not only about saying it's not only about getting good grades, it's not only about having a good reputation, looking good so you can get a good shidduch. But I want to know who you are. I want to know your struggles. 
I want to know your story. I want to know what you're dealing with. I want to know about your emotions. I want to know about your natural, true self. What's behind the walls, even if nobody sees it. That's where relationships happen. That's where we connect to God. That's where we connect to people. That's where we connect to our spouses. That's where we connect to ourselves. That's where we connect to children. Rule number two. If you can absorb, you can extract. People often look at themselves and their life's experience. And we have absorbed various, various flavors and tastes. And some of us are all too aware of those flavors and tastes. Here we go now to the other extreme. The first group of people denies that anything is behind the wall. Or even if they can't deny it, they ignore it, or they repress it, or they crush it, or they make believe they're repressing it and crushing it, just to make sure that the train continues on its journey. But then you have those who know about these flavors and tastes and experiences, and they think that they're there to stay forever. If I have absorbed certain attitudes, perspectives, fears, insecurities, maybe even I have absorbed certain messages or I lived in a way that caused me to do certain things inside my own system that I'm not even aware of and I only become aware of it 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years later. But now it's there. And a person lived a certain way for 20, 30, 40 years based on these life's experiences. From childhood or from adulthood. And right now, there are a lot of things in me that may be negative or dysfunctional or challenging. Challenging tastes and flavors, instincts, paradigms, perspectives, emotions. Comes the Torah and says, you need to know, just as it went in, it can go out. Don't think life is a one-way street. It went in, you say it went in, right? It went out. The worst mistake is to believe that you were born damaged. We don't believe in original sin, although in some circles by us it looks like we do believe in it. Original sin means you're guilty till proven innocent. You were born with the devil's influence. You were born evil. Evil is inside of you, now prove yourself. That's not the Jewish faith, that's not the Jewish religion. You absorbed it at some point. You absorbed it, you can spit it out. A Jew once came to Reb Nachman of Breslov. He poured out his heart to his Rebbe, and amid his heart-wrenching cries, he says, Rebbe, my life is ruined. I have destroyed my life. Reb Nachman looked into his eyes, and he said, My son... If you believe you can destroy, then you have to believe that you can mend. And the Breslov Hasidim turned it into a famous song. Why do some people think that they have the power to destroy, but they don't have the power to rebuild? If you think that you're powerful enough to destroy your life, why suddenly do you become powerless? Thank you. 
to rebuild your life? He says, let's say you destroyed your life. Wow, you have so much power? So you could fix it. Why do we think that dysfunction or other undesirable traits or experiences are a one-way street and once they creep in, they stay there forever? That's not the case. If they can come in, they can go out. You were not born dysfunctional. You were not born damaged. You were not born treif. You were not born bad. You may think today you were, but that's part of the taste that was absorbed into you. I am damaged, I am ugly, I am grotesque, I am a loser, I am not needed, I am unwanted. That is what you have to spit out, that's not true. We say in the morning how we were born. The soul that you have imbued within me is tahira. Tahira means pure, in Aramaic tahira means light. Tahiru is light. It's pure and it's full of light. It's full of luminescence. It's full of brightness. It's full of light. It's full of confidence. It's full of optimism. It's full of possibility. It's full of creativity. It's full of ingenuity. And it's full of potency, alacrity, swiftness, joy. It's full of it. It's full of faith. That was an interesting slip. It's not full of it, but full of, full of these qualities. <laughs> full of powerful light, infinite light. You're a princess of infinity or a prince of infinity. I absorb tastes, okay. I can admit it. There was once a shidduch, a match that was proposed among two great Hasidic communities, the grandson of the holy Rabbi Yisrael Rizhina, the Halik Rizhina known as Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin, his grandson was to marry the daughter of Rabbi Tzvi Riminover. And a meeting was arranged between the Halik Rizhina and the Halik Riminover to discuss the proposal of their grandchildren. So the Rizhina says, he says, I've always maintained that Yichis, Family lineage is a very important factor to consider in marriage proposal. Allow me, the Ruzhina says, to tell me, to tell you, to tell you about our family, where we come from. So he says, My El is given the Heleke Magid. Rabbi Sol great grandfather was Reber, Rebdoif Ber, the Magid of Mizrich, the successor of the Balshemtiv. My Zayde is given Zainzun. Rabbi Avram Hamalach. The Magid had a son whose name was Rabbi Avram. They called him the angel. He was an angel. That's given my Zayd. My great uncle, he says, my elder fet is given Rabbi Nachum Chernobyle. My fet is given Rabbi Motila Chernobyle, the Chernobyle Magid. Rabbi Nachum Chernobyle was a student of the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid. And so he goes on and on, and Yichis at Nishge felt in Rush, and there was no shortage of it. So he turns to the potential Mechutin, and he says, now tell us about your lineage, about your yichas. So he says, you know, Rebbe, my parents passed away when I was a young lad. I was a child at the age of 10. So I don't know much about my yichas, because I didn't have the privilege of growing up for many years with my parents. My relatives basically did not know what to do with me. So at the age of 10, I became an apprentice to a tailor, a schneider. Somebody was a tailor, which was a very uh, important, still an important job. 
and it was an important job at the time. And my tailor raised me, he taught me a trade, and he taught me what I know about life. I was with him for five years, and I learned from him two messages that guide my life to this very day. My tailor, mentor, semi-father would always say, mend the old and take care not to ruin the new. Those are my two philosophies in life. Mend the old and take care not to ruin the new. So the Rishonah said, ah, this is a good Shidduch. <laughs> this is a good Yichas for me. And they made the Shidduch. This was an important idea. It also told you how the Rishonah understood what Yichas is. Some people think having a good family serves the purpose of covering up all problems. Then you should take your yichis, and I'm not going to say what to do with it, but you'll figure it out. Then yichis becomes a curse on the chasen and a curse on the kala. It becomes a justification for malfunction, dysfunction, and obnoxious behavior. A Jew came to me. He's in his 40s, and he doesn't have bread on his table. And I know him, he's talented, he's smart, he's a good guy. So he wants to meet me. So I asked him to write the problem, he wrote the problem. Should I know Parnosa, a bunch of kids, can I not? So we sit down, he tells me again the issue. So I said, you know, can I suggest something simple? Like, he says, yeah. I say, did you think of getting a job? He says, it's out of the question. I said, why? He says, you know what my father is? <laughs> you know what my Zaid is? You know my Elta Zaid? You know which family? I knew the family. He says, in our family, you can't just get a regular job. You need a holy job. A holy job I can get. I had this, I had this. And therefore, he won't get it. So now I ask you, this yichis, it elevates people, destroys people. The name of Yichis, he lives a completely dysfunctional life. Wakes up 11 o'clock in the morning, goes to sleep, I don't know when. And what? The justification is holiness. This is taking holiness and abusing it for yourself, for your children. What the Yerushalayim meant to say was, I had parents who taught me how to live. They taught me how to be honest with myself. When he heard from Reb Rimenov that he had a tailor who told him, mend the old and don't ruin the new. You have a new suit, a new dress, don't ruin it and mend the old. This is what a marriage needs. <laughs> have the courage to mend the old. Don't throw it in the garbage. Mend the old and take care of the new. If you believe you can destroy, you have to believe that you can mend. Don't give yourself credit one way. This is called the curse of Jewish guilt. We give ourselves credit only one way. We know how to destroy everybody. I'm guilty for my kids, I'm guilty for myself, I'm guilty for my mother, I'm guilty for my father, I'm guilty for my brothers, I'm guilty for my sisters. I'm guilty for everything. Really? You're such a powerful person? The whole cloud you saw is destroyed because of you. Unbelievable. So if you have such power, maybe you rebuild your people. 
<laughs> it only works one way. That's how you know it comes from the Eight Sahara. How do you know guilt comes from the Eight Sahara? If it's real, you have so much power to ruin their life. No? So where's the power for positivity? So come on. Take the reins and bring in healing to life. Bring in light to the life. Oh, no, 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 no. There I can't. So in other words, if I believe I have power one way, I have power the other way. Stage three, step three. The process of extraction is similar to the process of absorption. This is all good and shame, all very nice and sweet or challenging or painful. Depends on who's sitting in the room and how you're processing it. But the question is, how does one go about expelling these dysfunctional qualities, expelling these profound insecurities or fears or sense that my life has to be so filled with loneliness. How do I rid myself of these inner problems? Just as it got in, that's how it will creep out. Let me explain. Psychology generally offers us two approaches. One, in a very, very general fashion, because each approach itself can be subdivided into hundreds of branches, and there are other approaches, but I'm generalizing two very known doctrines. One is the process called psychoanalysis. Basically, the psychoanalyst will search for clues to discover the roots the roots of the tree, what are the roots of your emotions? What are the roots of your experiences? What are the roots of your responses? What are the roots of your behaviors? Or as the story goes, a Jew travels on vacation in August to the Bahamas. Sitting on a beach, he writes a postcard to a psychoanalyst. And it says, I'm here in the Bahamas, I'm having a great time. I wish you were here to tell me why. <laughs> A guy once walked into a psychiatrist for an appointment and he says, Good morning, doctor. I won't ask you how, how you are, how are you, because I know how you are. Can you just tell me how I am? So, this is not so humorous. It's really a profound process. It takes a lot of courage to stop and ask myself, What is the root of my behavior? Why am I responding this way? Why am I having such a negative response? Why is this so hard for me? Why am I so empty? What, what is going on? And to be brutally honest with this is difficult. How many people are capable of this? Sometimes it takes people 20 years and they're not ready for this. They're just not. It's not a place where you voluntarily go. As I said, you don't open the hood of your car. You don't come here and all open your hoods and say, Hey, come, check out my inner car. It's not what we do. It's difficult. But at times, it's vital. At times, it's powerful. At times, it's healing. So when you'll come to your psychoanalyst, or whatever form he or she takes on, and you'll say... I'm having a lot of issues with my mother, I'm having a lot of issues with my husband, I'm having a lot of issues with my child, a lot of issues with my sister, I'm having a lot of issues with my boss, whatever it is. The question will be, what is it bringing up for you? What is the root? What is the source? Let's try to work it through. It could take eight months, it could take eight weeks. 
It could take eight years. Hopefully you'll get somewhere. But this form of healing has challenges. It has a few challenges. I'm going to mention two. The greatest is, will the patient be able to reach the source of the problem? Or will he get entangled and caught up in the journey? Sometimes you want to get to the destination, but the journey is so complex and there's so many ditches, you fall in on the way to one ditch, another ditch, another ditch, and you don't end up anywhere. What happens also is sometimes people start worshipping the process. They go to therapy just to be in therapy. That becomes an objective in and of itself. I am a problem case and I worship that. And I won't stop. I go from the gym to yoga to Pilates to therapy, iced coffee, back to therapy because I have a second therapist, and then I come home. So sometimes you have to be careful not to worship the process. You become almost dependent on the process. That's another issue. Will the search help the person cure the problems or maybe take them deeper into it? This is a challenge. This is a struggle. Sometimes I just get caught up in analysis. I have books on myself. Right? I have books and books and books and books on me and my this and my that and my that and my that and my that. And my that. Now live. Oh, I don't do that. I just analyze life. And I'm good at analysis. I have journals after journal. How many journals do you have? Journals after journals. You're writing these journals since you're five years old. At this point, you have 199 journals. And every day, a new novel is written about your life. With whole new experiences. There's a value in in exploring and self-exploring and journals and so forth. But one has to know, where is it leading them? Where is it leading them? There was once a professor... He was an anatomy professor, and he was giving a lecture in university to the students about how the leg and the foot functions. Now, we take these things for granted, right? You want to walk, Baruch Hashem, you lift up your leg, you put it down, and you walk. But do you know how many decisions have to be made by your brain in order to take one step? Do you know the synchronization that is necessary between the legumes and the muscles and the arteries and the sinews and the nervous system and the bones in order to be able to take one step? Your brain has a hundred million neurons and it's making a hundred million decisions every millisecond governing a hundred trillion cells in the body. These numbers were not exaggerated. Who knows about this? So this professor analyzed it and explained to them what has to happen in the brain and in the leg and the foot for you to take a step. He finishes the lecture. And you know what happened? Everybody tried to stand up. They couldn't. They couldn't. Who could do it? If I ask you right now, I say, I need you to make 299,960 decisions at the moment for you to be able to pick up your hand. You're like, do me a favor. Which only allows us to appreciate our bodies. To allow us to appreciate the infinite divine wisdom that our bodies are born with. It's incredible. But that's the point. If you analyze how to walk too long, too much, you won't be able to walk. And sometimes what happens is, I become so analytical, I know myself so well, but there's no self in the process. All there is, is somebody searching for themselves. So it's like the guy from Chelem, who used to wake up in the morning, until he got out of his house to go to the office, it took him two hours, because he was a kratzer. You know what a kratzer is? A procrastinator. 
Couldn't find his jacket, couldn't find his keys, couldn't find his shoes, couldn't find his hat. I mean, some of you, you know what I'm talking about. You may be that way or be married to that person, whatever it is, but it's always Lebedic to have a relationship with such a person. If it's about mitzvah at 7 o'clock, tell him it's at 4. And then you'll get there at 8. That's the clown. And you'll never be upset again in your life. Every event, three minutes early, I'm a chaya. I mean, three hours early and everything will work. I'm notoriously late to the airport. So I had a friend I was once traveling with when I was a yeshiva bacher. So he once told me, he told me the flight two hours earlier. I came a half an hour before the flight and I still had two and a half hours left. It was wonderful. And I appreciated it. He appreciated it. It was good. Anyway, this guy from Chelem, till he got out of the house, it was Shreklech. So he comes to the Rav of Chelem. says, what do I do? He says, the night before, every night you're in bed, you're going to sleep, take a pen, take a paper, and write down where everything is. Somehow the night before you know where it is. Your hat, your shoes, your pants, your jacket, your briefcase. Great. Takes a note, he writes where everything is, and then he comes to number 10, I. I am in bed. He wakes up in the morning, Moidani Lefanecha, washes Negovasa, gets dressed, takes out the list, Amachaya. In three minutes he had everything. Up to number 10. Number 10, I, I am in bed. He goes to the bed to look for himself. He's not in bed. He looks under the blanket, on top of the blanket, unted in kishin, off in kishin, under the mattress, above the mattress, he climbs under the bed. Three hours he's looking for himself. He comes to the Rav, he says, every day it takes two hours to get out of the house. Today it's three hours and I still haven't found myself. He said, you chacham, or you shaita. You can't be the self looking for the self. It just doesn't work. What happens often is psychoanalysis becomes a destination. Not a means, not a journey. And sometimes a person ends up somewhere in the abyss in the process. There's another approach known as the behavioral approach. The behavioral approach doesn't accentuate or try to focus on the problem and on the roots. It focuses on leading a productive life, on doing behavioral things that will enhance the quality of your life. It focuses on positive behavior rather than on positive feelings. Now this has proven successful for many people. However, it has its own challenge. And that is many people will often tell you their pain has not disappeared. It just festered internally. It caused them a lot of frustration and stifling from within because sometimes... There is something very, very powerful that I need to address. Sometimes behavior is the way, but sometimes it's just there. And if I don't go there, if I don't address it, if I ignore it, I solve the problem for a day, for two days, for a week, for two weeks, but not heavily. And the two approaches always butt heads. They always butt heads. In Parshas Matais, three and a half thousand years ago, we're introduced to a third approach. The third approach is really today at the cutting edge of the world of therapy. In halacha, it's called three words. Keboiloi, kachpaltoi. The way it came in, that's how it gets out. What is this? What does this tell you? Regardless of whether you embrace the first path or the second, or a combination of both, which is always more wise psychoanalysis and behavior, 
there is a third component that should never be ignored because it often proves to be the most powerful in healing and recovery. The principle is this, very briefly. The situation which allowed you to absorb the particular original attitude, fear, insecurity, drive, emotion, paradigm, that situation or situations which caused you to absorb those tastes and flavors when you were two, four, eight, twelve, twenty, or whatever the age was, they, those situations in one way or another will return again. You will find yourself in similar circumstances. And when the situation repeats itself, you will have the ability to do one of two things. Absorb the flavor even more, or spit it out, expel it. So for example, let's say you have a person who suffers from very deep insecurity due to the fact that a parent or a sibling managed to make this person feel meek. You grew up in a home where you always, in your own experience, it's almost irrelevant about their intentions. Could be they had the intention, they didn't have the intention. But as a result of their behavior, you come, you emerge as an adult feeling meek, feeling insecure, feeling crushed. You're not allowed to be present. You're not allowed to blossom. You're not allowed to have an opinion. You're not allowed to have feelings. You're not allowed to be. Basically, for you to be loved, you have to be gone. For you to be, you have to not be. That's how you grew up. Anybody knows what I'm talking about? If you don't, God bless you. If you do, God bless you even more. This is an experience. This is very real. Some people will live their whole life, 40, 50 years, based on this paradigm. For me to be, I must be not. You know how complicated that is? Especially in the presence of those people who made them feel that way. In their presence, they completely cease to be. You can analyze this for 20 years. You could, and you'll get to the core of it. And the core is not so complicated. We can also focus on behavior, behavior, behavior. But here is what we're learning now. You will have a second opportunity, probably a third, probably a fourth, probably hundreds of opportunities in which a similar situation, like the first one, will present itself. This time around, you're a conscious adult. And the same exact thing that happened then will happen again. Now you have a choice. Either you can absorb that sense of meekness, that sense of inadequacy, you can absorb it yet deeper, because every time you absorb it, it goes one step deeper, because it has to go somewhere and it's already deep. So it goes deeper and deeper. Or, you can spit it out of your system. How? By responding differently, based on a vision of how you would like to be. Based on a vision and on a value, how you would like to be, or how you really are, or what this utensil really was before it absorbed, based on that vision, you will respond differently. And what happens is, you will extract from yourself 
slowly but surely, those feelings. So you see, analysis and getting to the root is a fine tool, sometimes a challenging tool, sometimes a problematic tool, sometimes a blessed tool. For some people it's miraculous. And everybody could sometimes use a little bit of it. Behavior is an extremely fine tool. But here there is a unique symmetry, a unique synchronization, a unique combination. Nothing is as powerful as confronting the same situation, and this time around, doing it differently. And you might say, what will doing it differently help if this is who I am? The answer is, keboiloi kach poltoi. If a person can do it differently, that behavior is not just external. That behavior has a way of bypassing analysis and going to the core of the tray for flavor and expelling it. Sometimes when I analyze, I can also get stuck in the process. I have to sometimes bypass it, shock it, skip over it. This is where behavior comes in. This is the power of behavior. Behavior is very external, but behavior is also very, very deep. But sometimes you just have behavior. Here it's not just behavior. Here it's behavior of keboiloi kachpaltoi. Where the person approaches something, and the whole process is coming back to them. Because who we are, we take with us wherever we go. In every conversation, in every relationship. And as it emerges again, I'm not going to analyze it. But this circumstance is here once again in my life. You absorbed it at this moment. This is the mechanism to spit it out. So now when it comes back to your life, usually you melt. You go crazy. You're like, oh my God. No, 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 no. This is your moment. This is the moment when you can expel it. This is the moment when you could respond differently in an opposite way. And as a result of that, it gets spit out. The Rambam in Hilchus Tshuva writes, Ezer Hitshuva Gemura. What is real Tshuva? What you did the first time. A person who confronts the same situation in which he originally sinned. And he can repeat the sin again. And he doesn't do it because of repentance, out of a lack of strength, out of strength, not of weakness. That's real tshuva. So for example, if I have a proclivity to sin, to lie, if I have a proclivity to lie in particular situations, real repentance is not that I don't lie anymore. Real repentance is that the once again I'm placed in the same situation, naturally my instinct says lie, 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 lie. Because this is when I always lie. I say, no, I'm not doing it. The Rambam says, this is tshuva gemura. This is real tshuva. Sometimes I can't do this because the situation doesn't come back again. But this is tshuva gemura. But it seems unfair. Because people might not be given a second opportunity. The answer, of course, is everybody. Every negative encounter, every negative experience will come around again. Trust me, God will make sure that the original challenge which caused you the downfall will present itself again in one way or another way. This is your chance to respond differently. There's never a situation that doesn't come back. It comes back. Instead of melting, remain steadfast and say, this time the flavor is going this way, not this way. It's really the same thing, it's only direction. Hold on to the flavor. I'm holding on to the flavor. I don't know how to get rid of it. It's in my walls. My choice is, am I sending it this way? 
or that way. That's basically what it is. This way means deeper yet. That way means get out. And just like it got in, that's how it's getting out. Because this is the same moment I'm facing that I faced 25 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 30 years ago. Same exact moment. But if I'm conscious of what is going on, I could spit it out. Somebody once said, every time I close the door on reality, it makes sure to come through the window. That's the truth. (laughs) By divine providence, it comes back. It comes through the window. And if you study your life, everyone here, you'll notice that throughout your years, every single situation, experience, encounter, which needed mending, presented itself again. Every encounter of yours, every relationship, every experience that needed healing, presented itself again, in one form or another. But the issue was the same. The struggle was the same. The second time around, I can be a fool. The second time around, I can be weak. I can allow shame, pride, the fear of vulnerability to paralyze me and just remain the same paralyzed person and let this taste go in deeper. Or this time around, I could spit out the non-kosher flavors and become a free human being. They tell the story about the Heleke Rebbe Reb Melech of Lezhenz, the Noyem Elimelech. He was visited by a man who was childless for 18 years. And he asked that the Rebbe bless him and his wife and daven for them to Hashem, that they have a child. The Heile Kenoyim Elimelech said, you know it says in Svarim, that sometimes when you hurt somebody, you embarrass somebody, you denigrate somebody, and there is no forgiveness, there is a negative energy in your life. There is bitterness, there is frustration, there is hate. And that sometimes can obstruct the channel, the flow of blessings is there somebody you really hurt in your life and you never apologize to them? He said, Rebbe, no. He said, think, think. He said, no, I can't remember. He says, were you ever married to somebody and you left the marriage and there was no closure? He says, I was never married. He says, were you ever engaged to somebody? You just broke off the engagement. You didn't apologize. There was no closure. And there's maybe a Jewish woman somewhere who's really, really hurt by you and she never forgave you, you never apologized, you never said, I'm sorry, you just dropped her, like dropping somebody off a roof, and you ran, and there was no closure, and that negativity is obstructing your own blessings. He says, I was never engaged. He says, did you ever promise anybody to marry them? And you ran. He says, I don't think. He says, tracht, tracht, think, think. He says, eh, garnished. You know, you say, eh, garnished, this is garnished. To himself, it's nothing. He says, what's nothing? Whenever somebody says, eh, garnished, (laughs) it's good to figure it out. (laughs) What's the nothing? What is it that you call nothing? So he says, I grew up in a home, and nearby there was another home, and I was a little boy, and there was a little girl who was my next door neighbor, and we always played together. And we were best friends as kids. And there was a tree in front of our home that we would always climb. 
And years, years, we played together. Every day after school, we would play together. We were literally best friends. And everybody would joke that one day we're going to marry each other. One day, I was on the top of a tree, and she climbed up, and we were alone on the top of the tree. We were the kids. And she turned to me and said, would you marry me? I said, of course I'll marry you. She said, promise. So I promised, I will marry her. And the Rebbe Reb Melech says, and what happened? So what happened is we became adults, and boys and girls stopped uh, playing with each other, hopefully. And uh, I went on with my life, and she went on with her life. He said, did you ever apologize to her? I mean, you were such best friends. I mean, and you were growing up together. Did you ever apologize to her? Did you ever... He says, no, I mean, we were kids. It was a game. It was fake. He said, in her eyes, it was also a game. He said, we're kids. That's what kids do. He said, you should ask her forgiveness. You should ask her forgiveness. So he says, I'm married now 18 years. And this is even before. Where do I find her? He says, gay and broad. Go to Brod. He lived in Lezhensk, which is in Poland. Brod is also in Poland, a lot, much larger city. Gay in Brod. Now, telling somebody gay in Brod, I tell somebody, go to New York. Right? I sometimes visit Australia, other countries, and somebody says, you probably know my cousin. He lives in Manhattan. I say, of course, of course, we're best friends. You must know my cousin, they live in Borough Park. Of course, I know everyone who lives in Borough Park. They think they live in a community with, you know, 29 people. So in New York, there's 39 people. So, gay in broad. Where do you go in broad? Where am I supposed to find a woman in broad who used to be my friend when I was a kid? But the Neuheleke Rebbe Reb Melech said gay in broad. So he went to broad. He goes to broad. Where do you go to broad? So he goes to the marketplace. What they call the Yerid, the marketplace. The vendors are standing and selling foods. And suddenly it starts pouring. Starts pouring, everybody looks for shelter. So some of these vendors had umbrellas, you know, they have umbrellas over the, like they have the hot dog stands with umbrellas. So he runs under one of these umbrellas, and a whole group of people walking in the street wanted to protect themselves from the thunders and the lightning and the rainstorms. They all were under this umbrella. And everybody was smashed together like sardines, because they all wanted to be under the umbrella. And uh, he feels suddenly this uh, elbow, like this elbow under, you know, in his, uh, his ribs. So it wasn't very comfortable. So he, he moves away. And he hears somebody say, so you're still running away from me, huh? And he turns around. And this is his old friend who he grew up with. He sees her, she sees him. He says, it's you. And she nods. And he asks her to go to the side. And he says, this is crazy. I went to the Rebbe of Melech. He told me to come to Broad. I meet you. I have to apologize to you. I never apologize to you. I am so, so sorry. I know you might have taken it seriously that we're going to marry each other. And I never married you. And I never asked Mechila. And... Uh, Please forgive me. I've been married for 18 short years. I, had no I have no child. Please, please forgive me. And she says, I forgive you. And he says, thank you. And he leaves. And she leaves. And he travels back home. And on the way back home, he decides to visit his brother, 
who's living in his parents' home where he grew up. It's on the way home. And he goes through that shtetl where they grew up. And he sees his next door neighbor, the brother of this girl who took over their parents' home. And he says, hey, I have regards for you. He says, from whom? From your sister. I was in Broad a few days ago. And your shwester, your sister, who I grew up with, was there. And I have regards. He says, Dubas tight sugar. You're crazy. He says, why am I crazy? He says, you have regards from whom? He says, my sister, your sister. He says, my sister's dead. Says, what are you talking about? He says, you don't know what happened to my sister? I don't know what happened to your sister. He says, my sister always wanted to marry you. When you left, and she heard that you got engaged to another woman from another city, she was heartbroken. The night of your wedding, we all went to your wedding in another shtetl. They went to the wedding. That night, my sister died in her sleep. She was a heartbroken lady. She's dead for 18 years. My sister is dead for 18 years. That's what she, she tells him. And then he realized what happened. That the Rebbe Reb Melech of Lezhensk did him this favor. That for a few minutes this soul came down into this world. For him to be able to ask forgiveness. And make closure. So he should be able to be blessed with children. But this was a unique moment. Because 18 years she was already in Olam HaEmes. This young woman. What does this tell us? What it tells us is, we often want to run away without closure. But if something is there, even if it's behind the walls, it's there, it's present. I have to have the courage to be able to stand up to it, to be able to make amends, to be able to apologize, to be able to confront my own fears and demons, to be able to go into it, and not just to ignore it and make believe, it just disappears. People often, in the name of false pride and egotism, will continue battles in families for decades. This one doesn't speak to this one, doesn't this one doesn't speak to this one. I'm not going to be the first one to apologize. This chutzpinyak is going to think that she was right and I was wrong. And really it's the other way. I was right and she was wrong. And in that name what happens is we allow dysfunction, we allow negativity, we allow uh, spiritual malnutrition to fester. And it translates into the next generation. And the next generation, where to live a godly life, a sacred life, is to allow yourself to be open, to allow yourself to be transcendent, to allow yourself to be so secure that you never have to be insecure. When you're very secure, you could be completely vulnerable. When you're very secure, you can always say, I'm sorry. When you're very confident, you can open yourself up and say, you know, I was trapped. I was in a, in a difficult place. I was immature, I was a juvenile, I was young, I was stupid, I want to make amends, I want to apologize. And the blessing is that every opportunity that caused something to get absorbed at any stage of your life will come back. Either with that person or with another person. may not always be as dramatic as in this story, but it's going to come back. And the person always ought to remember, Number one, it counts. Number two, if it was inside, it can go out. Don't think it can go out. Everything can go out. You're not a slave. You're not a victim. You weren't born a slave. You were born a free human being, destined to be free. You were born to be free. You are free. And number three, how? 
the same way it got absorbed. That situation will be there. Instead of cursing it, say this time, I'm going into the meeting, I'm going into the appointment, but it's going to be very different. I'm going back to that house, I'm going to make that telephone call, I'm going to go back with this person, and it's going to be different. It's going to be the same process, the same hot water, the same fire, but instead of going this way, it's going to go that way. According to this, it becomes crystal clear why the soldiers can only bring the carbon at the end. Why? They come to Moshe and they say, we want to bring a carbon because nobody was missing. No casualties. The Gemara says, what does it mean? Doesn't only mean physically. It means spiritually. The women of Midian were beautiful. They were exquisite. How do we know? Bilam suggested to Midian to get the Jews through their women. And they did it successfully. The Jews went crazy over the Midianite and Moabite women to the point that the women persuaded them to worship the Baal Pa'ar, which was a disgusting idolatry at the end of Balak. And the Jews went crazy with those people of Midian, the females of Midian. And there was a plague, 24,000 people. Now you're sending 12,000 abled men back into the lion's den? It's Meshuggah? That's why Moshe had to choose special people. They came back, they said, Lo'inifgad mimenu ish. Nobody was missing spiritually, morally. Asks the Gemara, so why are they bringing a carbon? Why are they bringing a carbon? Why are they bringing an offering? Is it just gratitude? Or is it also atonement? They say, lechaper al nafshaisenu, to atone. You just said, lechaper mimenu ish, nobody fell. If a few people fell prey to their instincts, no, you said nobody fell. They went in with purity, they came out with purity, they did the job and they left. So Rashi says, quoting the Gemara Masech Shabbos, Lechaper al hirur halev shal b'nois midyan. The kapara was hirur halev. There were internal struggles. Behaviorally, they were righteous. Internally, it was a struggle. Yet they could say, Because struggle is part of the human condition. The greatest people struggle. In fact, greater people have greater struggles. More sensitive people have much deeper struggles. What counts in this area is behavior. When we spoke about what counts behind the walls, it means don't ignore it. But you can't always get rid of what is behind the walls. They had Hirur Halev. They had Hirur Halev, Hirur Avera, and they came to atone. Ah, here's a word from the Chidush Sharim. He says, one second. When they came back from war, they said to themselves, we don't need to bring a carbon for atonement, because in behavior we were perfect. And behavior is what counts. Suddenly they heard the laws of kashering. When they heard the laws of kashering, what did they discover? They discovered that what's behind the walls counts. What is inside the system matters. Take note of it. Acknowledge it. Embrace it as part of your story. Don't make believe it's invisible. From the laws of kashering, they heard a new side in life. It's not just the flavor of shrimp in your pot. It's the flavor of shrimp in your soul. <laughs> or whatever the flavor is. When they heard that, afterwards they say, ah, it's time to bring a carbon.
Now they can bring a carbon. Before that, they didn't think they have to. Once they learned that you say that Judaism is not externals only. It's the full spectrum of the human condition that you have to bring to God. Including all my thoughts, including all my emotions, including all my experiences. God doesn't want perfect people. He wants real people. God doesn't want holy people doing holy things. He wants sometimes unholy people doing holy things. God doesn't want winners. He wants fighters. People who are ready to fight. Far more important than winners. Very few people can win. We sometimes lose the battle. What's objective is to win the big war. So when that happens, I bring everything into life. I consider it. I look at it. And I have to acknowledge, yes, I went through these struggles. And the carbon is my way of dealing with it. I couldn't just reject it. I couldn't believe. I couldn't repress it and say, it doesn't count. After this, Hilchus Kashrus, they said, now is a carbon lechaper al nafshe seinu. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.